And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first, for ye are many. And call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us! But there was no voice, nor any that answered. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 107, Elijah versus Baal. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Let us imagine going to the Louvre. Rarely is there a day without long lines of eager tourists waiting for their chance to enter one of the most luxurious, elaborate, and expansive museums in all the world. And yet as we, in our imagination, step inside, we do not go with the crowd. We ignore the hordes heading to the Mona Lisa, to the Venus de Milo, to the winged victory of Samothrace. We seek exhibits of biblical significance, which will inspire not aesthetic awe, but rather contemplation of God's hand in history. We go into a room in the Middle Eastern section and stand before a stone bearing an image. Uncovered in the 19th century in the middle of what is today modern Syria, what we are looking at is a Canaanite god whose name appears in many stories in the Bible. This is Baal. Now a remnant of a civilization that once was, Baal, the pagan deity, was a source of temptation for Israel for generations. And the worship of Baal will be the mark of one of the most wicked monarchies in the Bible. But the battle against the lure of Baal is led by one of the most famous prophets in the Tanakh, a prophet who gives us some of the most incredible stories in Scripture, stories which inspire and instruct to this day. As the Bible describes the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, a difference between these dynasties begins to emerge. Judah will have some truly terrible kings and some that are less bad. The sinful son of Solomon, Rehavam, is followed by a son who is equally sinful, But the next king, Solomon's great-grandson Asa, is largely a good king. In later generations, we will meet both terribly wicked and also undeniably great members of the Davidic dynasty. In contrast, there will never be a truly great king of northern Israel. The houses of Yeravam and Basha are followed by the politically powerful Omri and then Omri's son Achav. Achav marries a pagan princess, Jezebel, who herself is remembered as one of the Bible's great villains. She hunts and stalks the prophets of the one true God and drives Israel's embrace of Baal worship. Why is the worship of Baal so terribly tempting to the Israelites? We must turn to the image of this false god that we can see in the Louvre in order to better understand the allure. As professors Mitchell Reddish and Clyde Fant describe in their book Lost Treasures of the Bible, the image on this stone, quote, depicts Baal standing with legs apart with his right hand raised over his head, holding a club, ready to release a lightning storm upon the earth. In his left hand he holds a spear, whose sharpened head is pointed downward. The upper branch of the shaft of the spear forks into several branches." The professors explain that the forked spear in his hand is understood by scholars to either be lightning or perhaps its byproduct, the plants that grow after an extraordinary rainstorm. Baal, in other words, is the god of rain, thunder, lightning, and therefore the god of agricultural flourishing. Baal is the divinity embraced by Ahav, chapter 16, verse 29. And in the thirty and eighth year of Asa king of Judah began Ahav the son of Omri to reign over Israel. And Ahav the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahav the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nevat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. 
and he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahav made a grove, and Ahav did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Under Ahav, worship of Baal is embraced by Israelites of the northern kingdom. True prophets of the one true God are murdered and replaced with prophets that worship this God of the storm. Altars to Baal are erected in the Holy Land, and only one man stands against this pagan spread, Elijah. In an attempt to convince his brethren how wrong they are, Elijah performs some of the greatest miracles in the Bible in the name of the one true God. And as we begin Elijah's story, we look back at the image of Baal in the Louvre, and we realize that visiting a museum not only at times brings the Bible to life, it can also enormously enlighten the reader. Because when we read about the life of Elijah, it is, based on the text alone, difficult to understand what is going through his mind when he chooses to bring a particular miracle about. Thus, the biblical reader first meets the prophet in chapter 17. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahav, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. This means that Elijah is announcing the coming of a drought. The Talmud interprets this to mean that Elijah is making this pronouncement on his own. He is invoking this miraculous occurrence. But why hold back the rain? Why a drought? But if we study the image of Baal, if we understand who Baal was believed to be, then the meaning of the punishment that Elijah brings upon Israel is obvious. Elijah is attempting to show that all Israel's sacrifices to the rain god is for naught, that only repentance and return to the one true God will allow rain to fall again. As Professors Fant and Reddish note, in the very same room in the Louvre, near this image of this idol, there can be found on display a clay tablet excavated from the very same location in Syria. This provides selections from the myths of the Baal cycle, and as the professors tell us, in this myth, Baal battles Mot, the Lord of Death, and is dragged into the underworld. Without Baal, a terrible drought hits the earth, and nothing grows, and only after the intercession of the sun god is Baal released and agriculture can flourish once again. The professors tell us this in their very interesting book, and, ladies and gentlemen, once we know this, then the message put forward by Elijah is obvious in its symbolism. He is saying that only the God of Israel truly controls rain. Returning back to the image of Baal and his fiery lightning scepter, we are also able to understand the story in the Bible that follows the declaration of the drought. Elijah stages a contest between himself and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, which was a major site of Baal worship. Mount Carmel was at the time, if you will indulge the rabbinic penchant for puns, the original Israelite Baal Park. Israel and the prophets of Baal gather, and Elijah declares that each side must pray to its respective God and ask for fire to come down from heaven. Chapter 18, verse 22. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first, for ye are many, and call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under. 
And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he is in a journey, or perhaps he sleepeth and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets, till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when midday was past, that they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. Following the failure of the false prophets to call upon the God they claim exists, Elijah erects his own altar out of twelve stones, representing the spiritual repair of Israel's covenant. And he ensures that the miracle that is yet to come is made even greater by having water poured upon his offering. And then Elijah prays in verse 36, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. Elijah is answered. Israel exclaims, The Lord is God. In Hebrew, Hashem hu Elohim. The prophets of Baal are then killed. Elijah is illustrating that it is his God who truly brings lightning from heaven. It is the one true God, Israel is shown, who directs storms and causes crops to grow. Thus, to stand before an image of Baal in the Louvre in Paris is to contemplate the revolution that Israel wrought in the world. No other nation before Israel came close to contemplating that the forces of nature were not divine. If you read the pagan creation myths, you see that ancient societies never described a moment when the forces of nature did not exist. That was inconceivable. There was fire and water, and then God's help bring about other aspects of the world. This point is made by C.S. Lewis, who compares it to people watching a play like Macbeth. He writes, quote, When the curtain rises in these myths, there are always some properties already on the stage, and some sort of drama is proceeding. You may say they answer the question, how did the play begin? But that is an ambiguous question. Asked by the man who arrived ten minutes late, it would be properly answered, say, with the words, Oh, first three witches came in, and then there was a scene between an old king and a wounded soldier. That is the sort of question the myths are, in fact, answering. But the very different question, how does a play originate? Does it write itself? Do the actors make it up as they go along? Or is there someone not on the stage, not like the people on the stage, someone we don't see, who invented it all and caused it to be? This is rarely asked or answered, end quote. This is C.S. Lewis's description of pagan myths. But the question, how did it all come to be, is asked and answered by Israel, by Israel's Torah. Israel proclaims that once actually the world did not exist, that it was created, that it is controlled by a God, a one true God. The rain is not divine. The lightning is not divine either. All this Elijah desperately attempts to illustrate to Israel. And thus it is that after this miraculous victory over the prophets of Baal, that a small cloud appears on the far horizon. And from that cloud, a storm finally gathers and rain returns to the people. The tale of Elijah on Mount Carmel has inspired the ending of the liturgy of Yom Kippur. 
Some of the last words recited by Jews as a day comes to an end are those exclaimed by the Israelites rallying to Elijah on Mount Carmel. The Lord is God, Hashem Hu Elohim. Perhaps the point being made throughout the generations is that we too are all too often tempted, not by Baal, but perhaps by aspects of our own zeitgeist. Ancient agricultural Israel felt that embrace of Baal was necessary for their success. And we may often feel that there are aspects of the ethos of our own age that may lure us, aspects that are counter to the Jewish worldview. And so on Yom Kippur, at the end of the day of our atonement and repentance, we stand on that day of days, year after year, and faithfully, proudly proclaim, The Lord is God. After the offering on Mount Carmel, Elijah's victory seems complete, but it is not. The momentary miracle will awe Israel into a temporary acknowledgement of the omnipotence of the Almighty, but the terrible temptation of idolatry will remain, and Elijah's despair will grow, leading to an even more incredible story that we will discuss tomorrow. But to me, ladies and gentlemen, it is inspiring to consider the fact that one can visit the Louvre, stand before a statue of Baal, remnant of an ancient age, and know that the faith of Israel endures. Elijah, to this day, remains on the minds and hearts of Jews. He is mentioned at Havdalah services, at the end of Sabbaths, at Passover seders, and at circumcisions. The idol Baal is now a relic, but the faith of Israel, the faith of Elijah, continues. It is enough to inspire someone to stand in a museum in Paris and proudly proclaim, Hashem Hu Elohim, the Lord is truly God. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.